you'll get your uh, scripture uh, out, if you'll get God's word open and open to Ecclesiastes 11, we'll read the passage for uh, the sermon this morning. We'll be concluding uh, this book of Ecclesiastes this morning. Uh, this has just been, it's kind of one of those books that you like sometimes wonder, as I think Brian even mentioned, why is this in the Bible? But this has been so sweet, uh, just practical uh, ways that we can look and see how the Lord works uh, in our day-to-day lives. So join me starting in verse 7 of chapter 11 as we read through the end of chapter 12. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is Havel. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all of these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are Havel. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Havel of Havels, says the preacher, all his Havel. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's been a joy through Ecclesiastes. I hope you have enjoyed this book as much as I have. Uh, I think my favorite book thus far in our, in our life as a church has been Revelation, but the book of Revelation, um, but um, Ecclesiastes has probably been the most impactful, um, the most realistic, if you're one who likes to keep it real. Um, hopefully Ecclesiastes has done that uh, for you, and I know it's done that for my life. 
We come to the last section of Ecclesiastes and the end of the matter. That's the title of today's message. It's going to be somewhat of the main theme. Uh, what is the end of the matter that uh, Ecclesiastes, the preacher, really is all about? And I'm going to just keep the introduction very short. Um, this is somewhat like the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy. He's writing his last letter. Solomon here is probably an old man by now. He's dying, and he's um, writing a letter about life and uh, the joy of life and the quickness of life, the brevity of life, and how death is just knocking at, um, at our doorstep each and every day. So I think I have four or five points I just want to run through you. I'll, I'll try to keep it somewhat uh, brief, but uh, I do hope that th you are blessed again by these words from the preacher. Uh, not, not this preacher, but the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Point number one, beloved, is enjoy the present. Christ the preacher, who is the ultimate Solomon, as you know, he's the greater Solomon, wants you to enjoy the present. Verses 7 and 8. Number one, enjoy the present. Verses 7 and 8 of chapter 11. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. That all comes is havel. So, in other words, enjoy the present because that's all you have, actually. The present is really all you have. Enjoy the ordinary is what he's saying here. Light is sweet. Look at it. Verse 7. Light is sweet. So rejoice when you have light. A sunshine, he says. It's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Uh, rejoice. Be thankful when you see the sun. Though we can't see it now. Rejoice in the sunshine. It's beautiful. It's a good thing. Because the clouds are coming one day. Metaphorically and literally. The clouds are coming, so rejoice in light and take joy and gladness in the sun. You know, grumpiness is not virtuous. Shock, right? Grumpiness is not virtuous. But joy and thankfulness are. Douglas Jones argues in an essay that Christian culture's have failed throughout church history, hear this, not primarily because of insufficient theological education or inadequate evangelism or weak leadership, but, what would you add? Because a lack of joy. Reflecting on Deuteronomy 28.47, which I'll read it for you. God says to Israel, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness, and gladness of heart. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies. So Jones shows how the culture of God's people was to be marked by joy, not simply by duty and obedience and faith. And in other words, there's a way of looking at the world, beloved, that sees God's constant goodness. Did you know that? And there's a way of living, another way of living, that feels constantly slighted by God. And Christ the preacher is asking you today in verses 7 and 8, which one are you? 
The sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, thought the devil had a good point. You know, yeah, God said we can't eat from that tree. So what the devil did is he shrunk the goodness of God, you see. And Adam and Eve began to believe that they were slighted by God. We can eat from every tree in this garden, but from one, well, I guess God isn't good anymore. There's a way of looking at the world that constantly sees God's goodness, and therefore your heart reverberates with joy. And there's another way of looking at the world that feels constantly slighted by God. And when those dark days come, verse 8, we must remember they are part of the equation. He says, let him remember the days of darkness will be many. Boromir was right. Right, boys and girls? And Lord of the Rings? Evil doesn't sleep. It waits. The days of darkness will be many. So the future holds no guarantee that it will be better than the past or the present. No guarantee. To think that the next day or the next week will bring some solution to your difficulties or some satisfaction you desire is to live in a fantasy world. The future holds no guarantee that it will be better than the present or the past. Days of darkness are sure to come, the preacher says. So enjoy the present. (laughs) Rejoice in the light when it is light and enjoy the day so long as you have it because all is havel, bubblegum, smiles, rain, laughter. If we cannot enjoy the present, Serious questions have to be asked whether we have truly understood God's present goodness to us. And therefore, if you will understand the goodness to you brought to you in glory. So enjoy the present. By the way, I don't think any of these points are anything new from what we've said in Ecclesiastes, but boys and girls, isn't that the key to learning? Repetition. Repetition is the key to learning. So, second, guard your heart. Uh, Guard your heart. 11, 9, and 10. Rejoice, O young man. And by the way, young is, uh, in in this context, is anybody who basically is not on the verge of death. Okay, so that's all of us. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your In your youth, walk in the ways of your heart. Wow. In the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are havel. Guard your heart. Notice, beloved, look at your Bibles. Three times the heart is mentioned, is it not? Verse 9, let your heart cheer you. Verse 9 again, walk in the ways of your heart. So follow your heart. (laughs) I love that. Even though our world distorts it. 
Verse 10, remove vexation from your heart. So he's driving at what's most important in our life, the heart. The heart is what drives you. Okay, The heart is the governing center of your life. It's a term that captures the totality and unity of our inner man. When Ian talked about the soul, I think that's what we're getting at here. The heart, the soul, the same thing. For John Owen, the heart indicated, quote, hear this, all the faculties of man's spiritual life and the one principle of our moral operations. Okay, that's why we talk about the heart being what drives us. All right? It includes the mind. There's a quiz if you're in Sunday school. It includes the mind. What else? Will. Affections. Did you get it back there? Well done. What you know, the heart includes what you know, what you love, and what you choose. Mind, affections, will. And this is why the heart is the target of the preacher's exhortation. And by the way, it is the, it is the target of uh, Christ in the Gospels most of all. Because where your heart goes, there you go. So, verse 10, chapter 11, remove vexation from your heart. What does that mean? Well, Literally, it means let grief be lacking in your soul is the idea. Let grief be lacking in your heart. Why? It says, for youth and the dawn of life are Havel. (laughs) So youth is not the time to be sowing wild oats. In other words, youth, shocker here, will turn to wrinkles. Yeah. (laughs) Dan's over here. Amen. So guard your heart, in other words, from worthless pursuits while you can. Right? That's the idea. You're young. Don't sow wild oats. Guard your hearts from worthless pursuits while you can. You will not be able to eliminate all pain, but you can preempt pain with sound doctrine and shoving the Bible in your soul. This is the idea. So, remove vexation from your heart. Verse 9, let your heart cheer you. Uh, He also says, walk in the ways of your heart. So here we go again, right? There have been seven refrains of enjoyment in this book. And this is the last one. I was listening to the sermon by Joel Beakey the other day, and he said uh, Ecclesiastes was the most depressing book in all the Bible. And I thought, Oh, no. Joel Beakey, what'd you just say? Uh, I was so disappointed, but he's Joel Beakey. He's a man. There are seven refrains of enjoyment in this book. I feel like saying, read the letter. This is the last one. Let your heart cheer you. Verse 9, walk in the ways of your heart. And Christ the preacher once again asks, are you listening? Are you listening yet? Joy is not simply permitted, is it? Is it? No. 
it is commanded. Excessive seriousness is not genuine godliness. Okay? I know as Reformed folk, we think the more serious you are, the more godly you are. That's not true. To be joyless, all things considered, of course, in your life, is to sin. To be joyless, all things considered, is to sin. Turn to John 15, 11. These words are absolutely stunning from our Lord. John 15, 11. He's in the upper room by now, headed to the cross, not too far away. So here's the God-man. And as a man, he's looking to the cross as something where he's going to die and suffer. And he still says these words to his disciples. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you. Hear these words. That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I read that and I say, Christ is telling Calvary redeeming grace that you have the joy of Christ. My joy, I have, I have said these things, that my joy may be in you. So you have the joy of Christ, the very God-man. In fact, Hebrews tells us that it was joy that sent Christ to the cross, right? So you have the joy of Christ in your heart, and he says that your joy may be full. So there is no lack. We don't go to a well that has a well empty of water. We have the very well of Christ in our life for our joy. On top of that, Ephesians 1 tells us that you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Life, faith, justification, adoption, illumination. You have the promise of resurrection and eternal life. Your sins, beloved, past, present, and future will never condemn you. Think about that. Never condemn you. And we walk around grumpy. The preacher in Ecclesiastes says, get your eyes on Christ. What are you doing? Get your eyes on the riches you have in Christ. How can you not follow your heart? When your heart is laced with those truths, with the joy of Christ, and every spiritual blessing you have in the gospel, and you're not walking in joy, what's wrong? What blemish have you found in God? What defect in Christ? What devil in heaven? Let your heart cheer you. That's the point.
So guard your heart. Second, or third, Ecclesiastes 12, 1 to 8. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before, oh, sorry. Um, the point is prepare to die. Prepare to die. All of these images here in verses 1 to 8, okay, uh, they are images that portray the certainty of death and the brevity of life. All right, that's the idea. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil day comes. That's the evil day. That's the day of your death. And the years draw near, okay? So um, drop your eyes down to verse uh, 5. Man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets, okay? So all of these images here, we can't go through them all, are a picture of your, the certainty of your death and the brevity of life, things we talked about before in this uh, book. Um, in my estimation, verse 6 is the most vivid of them all. Look at verse 6. Your life, says the preacher, <laughs> is like a water, or is like water, held in a pitcher by the pulley at the well. Okay? And one day, he says, the time will come when that silver cord is snapped, that pulley will snap, and that bucket will fall to the ground. In other words, one day, you will come undone. Maybe it's today, playing soccer, Maybe it's tomorrow, or maybe it's 50 years. But your life will come to an end. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes takes you by the hand once again and asks you, before that day arrives, before your bucket falls to the ground, all right, and snaps, how are you going to live? Everything in this life, beloved, is temporary. And it's the fool who tries to hold on to them. And you know why the fool does this? Because this life is all he's got. The Christian, by contrast, is prepared to die because this life is not all he's got. The Christian has Christ. And it's knowing Christ and all that he is for him and the power of the resurrection that allows the Christian to truly live in light of death. Have you read Revelation 21 and 22 lately? What a place of absolute peace. The Puritans called it Emmanuel's land. What a great title, is it not, for heaven? What a place of joy, of gladness, of comfort, and peace. I don't know how I'm going to die. But I know or at least where I'm going. I'm going to Emmanuel's land. Walk in the power of the resurrection of Christ. Live this life and prepare yourself to die. Fourth, 
concluding thoughts. I have two of them. First, Ecclesiastes is a book of truth and a book of joy. Verse 10, chapter 12. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So, so Ecclesiastes is a book of truth because it's not coy about the challenges that accompany life. The merry-go-round of life, a funeral without friends, a time for every manner, have hopefully sucker punched you enough as we've gone through this book that you have begun to take seriously life in a fallen world and the certainty of your death. It's a book of truth, Ecclesiastes is. Secondly, it's a book of joy. It's a book of joy because Ecclesiastes is insistent that you enjoy God and his God-approved gifts. Again, one of the characteristics I look for in leadership is the characteristic of joy, but not the type of joy that is circumstantial. I want myself, I want our elders, our deacons, I want our leaders of our church with a deep, abiding joy, a Habakkuk type of joy. Remember Habakkuk? I think I would have loved to sit under Habakkuk's ministry. Here's what he said in his time. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the field yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall. So life is miserable. Life is bleak. Nothing is going on. Yet he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's what I want from our leaders here. And that's what I want from this church. This book is a book of joy and delight. Sorry, Dr. Beaky, you're wrong. It's a book of truth and a book of delight. A type of joy that believes God is absolutely on the throne and in control all the time, period, full stop. The second concluding mark will end here soon. And this is the end of the matter. Ecclesiastes calls you to fear God and keep his commandments. Verse 13. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about what it means to fear God. I gave a short definition that to fear God is the soul to be possessed by the greatness and goodness of God in Christ. We looked at Psalm 119 and Luke 5. And I think those characteristics are true throughout the Bible. For the soul to be possessed by the greatness and goodness of God in Christ. God's greatness, His power, His authority, God's supremacy, His dominance, His utter majesty. The absolute dominant uh, characteristic of God, His greatness. We must be possessed by His majesty. And yet we also must be possessed by His goodness. Beloved, God's power is kind. His authority is good. God's supremacy is gracious. His dominance is loving. God's majesty is beautiful. 
the soul must be possessed by the greatness and goodness of God in Christ. And this is what Peter saw, do you remember, in Luke chapter 5 while he was fishing of all things. He pulls up this, this net of fish, and Peter finds Christ absolutely terrifying. He says to him, depart from me. So he's got a sense of the greatness of God in Christ. In his faith, Peter does. Depart from me, he says. And yet, he also finds Christ attractive. Peter left everything, the text says, and followed Jesus. There was something uniquely attractive to Christ for Peter. Though Christ to him was was someone he would have to do with now and forever. Though Christ was something that, it would, that would slay Peter on the spot, a lot like Isaiah. There is something in Christ that Peter finds attractive. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, Dear Christian, does the fear of God run through your Christian veins? Is your soul possessed by the greatness and goodness of God in Christ? We're so flippant at times in our evangelical culture today when it comes to God, to the worship of God. And I get so sick of it. Maybe that's perhaps why I'm sticking around at Redeeming Grace for the summer. I don't want to go to any other place of worship and see the triviality of churches. No, I don't want to be on my mind. But I know they're there. So I'd rather not sin and just enjoy redeeming grace. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Joy of Fearing God, he gives the example of what it means to fear God. He says, pretend you're sick and you need a blood transfusion to live. Well, the president of the, of the United States of America hears of your condition. And having the same blood type gets on his presidential jet, so he gets on Air Force One and comes to your home, I suppose, Jerry Bridges says. What awe you would have, what reverence, what joy, what gladness. As he shows up and he gives his blood, donates his blood, and allows you to live. And Jerry Bridges says, beloved, it's not too far off from real life, you know. The Lord Jesus Christ has stepped out of heaven. He's heard of your condition of sin, of your inability to cure yourself, and to have life and life to the full, life full of joy, life full of comfort, life full of peace. Christ heard of your condition, beloved, and he left heaven, so to speak, for you. In the fullness of time, beloved, he says in Galatians 4, God sent forth his son. Oh, oh, don't those words just ring so much joy and gladness in your soul. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born of the law, because we were under the law to be saved from our sin and from condemnation. And he spilled his blood, not like the president but he hung on the tree 
for sinners. He, quote unquote, donated his blood, you see, so that you and I could be saved. Oh, what reverence, what awe, what joy and gladness ought to run through the Christian vein, you see. For Jesus Christ has come for the sinner. Do you fear him today? Are you stuck in triviality? You don't have to be. Look to Christ by faith. To fear God is for the soul to be possessed by the greatness and goodness of God in Christ. Those are the two concluding points. Let me just add one, one final word before I go on sabbatical. I couldn't help myself. You've heard a lot of exhortations in this book. A lot of law. Use wise words. Follow wise paths. Be slow to speak. Prepare to die. Enjoy the present. Diversify spiritual investments. Fear God. Work well. Get friends. Brace for suffering. Don't love money. Don't be a hypocrite. Hold on to Christ. Despise pride. Chase down humility. There's only one problem, isn't there? We're not very good at obeying exhortations on our best days. And our temptation is to measure our worth by our ability to keep those exhortations. That's the temptation in the Christian life, to look at your life and to see, mm, how do I stand with God? Beloved, never do that. Never ever build your worth on your piety. Never do it. Exhortations are given in the Bible. Ecclesiastes is given in the Bible to you so that you would know what to do and how to live. They are not given so that you would turn around and use them as something to see your worth in. Your worth does not come from your obedience. It does not. Your worth comes from Christ's obedience on your behalf. And I know what you're thinking. So obeying the law doesn't matter then? No, it does matter. But the law and your obedience to it, all of these exhortations is not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is Jesus Christ and apprehending him by faith alone. And do you know what happens the more you know Christ by faith? You begin to obey. Don't look 
to the law for power to obey. Look only to Christ in the gospel. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are so very thankful for this wonderful book. And we ask for our last time that you would ask your blessing to it. Add your blessing to it, we pray. For Christ's sake, for we need him so much. Amen.